There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike. I'm joined here with Dr. Matt. Say hello, Dr. Matt. Hello, Dr. Mike. And we are joined by our special guest, Dr. Dinesh Palipana. Say hi, Dinesh. Hey guys. Thanks for having me. Woo! Yay! All the underpants have been thrown at him. So, how have you been? Good. I'm uh, covered in underpants now. <laughs> That's just Matt's single underpant. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about anaphylaxis, aren't we, Matty? Yes, we are. Um, should we start off with a case study? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to read this. So it, and my computer screen is some distance away, so bear with me. All right. So Dinesh, a 14-year-old girl presents with severe respiratory distress to ED, where you are working. Uh, her past medical history includes asthma and a peanut allergy. Now, today, shortly after she ingested a biscuit at school, she began complaining about flushing, pruritus and diaphoresis, followed by tightness in her throat. There was a bit of wheezing and also difficulty breathing. The school nurse called the ambulance. No medication was administered. Okay, so there was no EpiPen or anything. Um, when she presents to you in ED... Her physical examination reveals an audible wheeze. There is some laryngeal edema and her oxygen saturation is about 90%. Yep. So um, I guess there, there are two things that could be going on with this girl. One is she's got known asthma, so she could be having an exacerbation of asthma. And we know that she has an allergic reaction to um, a known allergen. 
And we also know that uh, she ate a biscuit before this happened. Yep. So that, that pretty much gives us a good clue of what is going on. And medicine is really about that. It's about having a good history, which leads you down to the right path for a diagnosis. So, so I guess we will talk about that a bit later cl- clinically. But in this particular case, you would be pretty sure that it could be anaphylaxis? Yeah. And um, I think that's uh, that's the most life-threatening thing that could be going on with this girl as well. So it could lead to significant deterioration. And that that's probably the leading diagnosis that you at least want to exclude very quickly. All right. So we'll jump back to this case scenario shortly. I think we should first begin by Matt defining what anaphylaxis actually is. And then we can start talking about the pathophysiology associated with anaphylaxis. And then we can start focusing back on the clinical picture and how we would address anaphylaxis. Okay. So starting with the term itself, I think it was given maybe in the 19th century or anaphylaxis, the term itself. So that means against protection, which I guess is absent to prophylaxis, which is protective of protection, I think. So anaphylaxis is essentially a a type 1 hypersensitive disorder. Now, these are disorders where... So there's four types of these hypersensitive disorders. Um, Type 1 is considered a uh, IgE-reacted process. So IgE is an antibody, and usually they are connected to mast cells or basophils. And what essentially happens with type 1 hypersensitive disorders is something binds to the IgE antibody and then causes a reaction. Now, within these type 1 hypersensitive disorders, a big part here is the mast cell degranulating and releasing a lot of histamine. Now, also in this category, you have all the kind of allergies, which could be localized. So, a good example would be hay fever. Now, this is where your the body is reacting to the allergen being pollen, but it's localized in this case. Okay, so it's just um, local to your eyes or your nose or your airway. So this would be a kind of a, a hay fever reaction. But when you look at anaphylaxis, it's it moves to more systemic effects, which is whole body effects rather than just local effects. And this is where you have the issues starting to rise. So you could probably argue it is a normal immune reaction to something foreign, but it's overwhelming and it's excessive uh, and it starts to cause tissue injury, which is the problem. Um, In some cases, I guess you'd argue that it's reacting to something innocuous, which probably shouldn't react to. Um, That would be kind of my definition of anaphylaxis. Would you agree with that, Dinesh? Yeah, I guess it's an inappropriate response um, to something innocuous that other people are often exposed to but don't react don't the same react way. Don't react to okay. Yep. So that's the definition. So in terms of uh, grading, do you do that clinically? So if a person was to present with anaphylaxis, do you look at the different stages or levels to inform your clinical judgment? Or Yeah, you, you can look at the severity of... Uh, anaphylaxis so I know that um, there's there are textbook definitions of mild moderate and severe so mild being having a skin and subcutaneous tissue reaction um, which might be erythema urticaria periorbital edema or angioedema and then you go to moderate where there's respiratory 
cardiovascular and gastrointestinal involvement. Dyspnea, strider, wheeze, nausea, dizziness, diaphoresis, chest tightness, and then severe, so hypoxia, hypotension, or neurological compromise. But I guess the important thing to remember is that uh, if someone turns up into the emergency department or even your general practice, the severity, uh, while I guess it helps you assess where they're at at that point in time, it's important to start treating it immediately if you know that it's anaphylaxis because it can deteriorate so, so quickly. Death can occur within minutes or other complications can occur within seconds as well. So one of the things that can happen are huge fluid shifts from your intravascular space and you can shift up to 30, 35% of your volume within a matter of seconds to minutes. Jesus. So while... Um, while you can assess their severity, if you know that they're having anaphylactic reaction, the important thing is to treat it quickly to prevent further deterioration. Okay. So basically, even if they're presenting like this girl was, with maybe just some skin changes, flushing, diaphoresis, which is a bit of sweating, not to the point yet where her airways compromise or she's her blood pressure is like 60, you would still want to get on top of it quickly. If you, yep. were, if you were sure that it was anaphylaxis as opposed to maybe just a hay fever reaction. But how are you sure that it's anaphylaxis and not just a hay fever reaction or and asthma? That, yep, exactly. And that's why we have the diagnostic criteria for it. So there are three criterion uh, that you can look at. And if any one of those criteria are fulfilled, then you can make a diagnosis of anaphylaxis. The first criteria is uh, the acute onset of illness, so within minutes to hours, and it's usually within minutes, really. Um, And that involves the skin, mucosal tissue, or both. These are things like hives, pruritus, flushing, swollen lips, the tongue, or the uvula, with at least uh, respiratory compromise, so dyspnea, wheeze, strider, hypoxemia, or reduced blood pressure and associated symptoms. So whether they pass out, um, whether they become incontinent, lethargic. Um, That's criteria one. And then criteria two is two or more that occur quickly after exposure to a likely allergen for that patient. And again, that's minutes to hours, but usually minutes. So the biscuit in this case? The biscuit. Which Uh, you presume would be a peanut or a nut within the biscuit. Exactly. A nutty biscuit. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that should have two or more of either skin or mucosal tissue involvement, respiratory compromise, reduced blood pressure and its associated symptoms, or persistent gastrointestinal symptoms. So that can be crampy abdominal pain and vomiting. So, so all these um, potentially be presenting independently of one another. So could somebody come in uh, from an exposure to a peanut, for example, and just have the gastrointestinal effects and not have the respiratory issues associated with it? Yeah. In w- so if you just have one of them, though, you wouldn't be able to make that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I ate a peanut, now my abdomen's cramping. But, you know, if you have someone with a known peanut allergy and they have that, but you can't find any of the other features... You'd probably want to at least watch them for a bit. Yeah, that's that makes sense. Yeah. 
The third criteria is a reduction in the blood pressure after exposure to a known allergen to that patient. Again, within minutes to hours, but usually within minutes. Um, and if it's uh, infants or children, you look at their age-specific normal blood pressure and it's a reduction of 30% or more. And if it's adults, um, it's a reduction of below 90 or more than 30% of their baseline. So that's criterion three. So would it be safe to say that you working as a, an ED physician, that when somebody comes in to see you, that they are usually beyond the first stage there and they're starting to present with the respiratory issues, their blood pressure may or may not have dropped yet, their oxygen sat's probably lower than they should be. At what stage do you commonly get these individuals coming in to present to you in ED? Yeah, they're generally feeling pretty rubbish, actually. So a lot of people, uh, well, some people, uh, you know, don't end up coming to the ED until they feel pretty sick. Yeah. So there are usually symptoms, you know, oh, my voice has changed. I just feel generally rubbish. I have trouble breathing. My chest is tight. My lips are swollen. And how... From a percentage-wise, how many people would you imagine this is the first time they've experienced it, opposed to they know that they're a peanut allergy? Actually, most of the people that I've seen, um, and I, I think that'll probably change with the experience. It's my fourth year as a doctor. so Most of the people that I've seen, it's their first exposure. And maybe the reason for that is that people with known um, allergies and they have an EpiPen at home, perhaps they manage it okay. quickly. Good point. Yeah. So th- a lot of the patients that I've seen um, are their first exposure to often an unknown allergen at that point. Okay. Now, do you want me to quickly just talk about the, the etiology of how these progress, how this actually occurs? All right. So as I said earlier, um, the etiology is basically driven off mast cells. So mast cells are, I guess you would consider a type of immune cell that has changed from being in the, in the blood and are now residents within connected tissue. And so the common locations are under the epidermis, so just under the skin, under the mucosa, and in perivascular, so little blood vessels. So they're there from a protective means, so they are there to, tr- to react to things that are foreign, and they are a driver for inflammation. Inflammation is what we call an innate response that, our body has to react to something that is damaging. So I would imagine that mast cells were pretty good to alert the body that something foreign has come into your body, like a parasite. It's alarmed the system, so it's turned on inflammation, and then it's bringing all the white cells along to kill that, let's say, parasite. But in anaphylaxis, the mast cells are reacting probably inappropriately or too much, in to some cases, to things that shouldn't it, it shouldn't react to, because there should be negative feedback mechanisms that kick into play. So obviously, when you have inflammation, inflammation is like Matt said, an a, an a relatively acute response, or at least should be an acute response, which when you stimulate these mast cells to release all of its chemical components, which includes histamine and prostaglandins and a whole bunch of other cytokines, pro-inflammatory chemicals, and so forth, it leads to a whole number of 
what we call inflammatory effects, which is vasodilation, increased vascular permeability and so forth. Like Matt said, to bring in those white blood cells, increase the likelihood of your immune system taking away, washing away or diluting out any invading pathogens to that area. But we also have negative effects which should stop. Once, once the stimulus has stopped, basically, what that means is all those inflammatory chemicals should also stop as well. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to these hypersensitivity reactions, or especially in anaphylaxis, too many of these particular chemicals have been released. That individual is likely to have been sensitized prior to this type of um, stimulus. So the stimulus could be something that is immunologically based or non-immunologically based, and it could be something like a drug, uh, analgesics, antibiotics. It could be food. Peanuts are quite common, like we have in this particular case. Uh, but it could also be uh, an allergen like pollen, for example. And so this first exposure usually primes or sensitizes the system. And then upon second exposure, the individual has been sensitized and then you get this out-of-control inflammatory reaction. Would you agree, Matt? Yeah, so for to go back a step, so for anaphylaxis, essentially the two main causes, it's either immune-driven or an IgA specifically immune-driven or a non-IgA. So that kind of means that you aren't reacting from an allergy for this mast cell degranulation. It's just happened outside an allergen. Whereas the allergen-driven, so the IgE-specific ones, you need to be allergic, so you need to actually have a first exposure to it. So an example would be pollen. So for some people, they react to this, others they don't. And pollen is just a protein, I guess, in the, uh, the flower that's released in springtime, let's say. So it goes down a person's airway and what usually would happen is um, for the first exposure, it would get stuck in your mucosa in your airway and you would have these cells in your body who would um, eat them up and dispose of it and nothing would happen from that point onwards. But for some individuals, um, there's probably a million reasons for why this happens, genetic being one aspect to it. The macrophage, which is the big eater of your white blood cells, doesn't break it down completely and decides to present it to your other white blood cells. So it, it sees this pollen antigen as a problem and it, it presents it to T cells. The T cells come along and select for it, which then releases a number of chemicals. The big ones being interleukin-4 and 5, but interleukin-4 then goes, te- goes and tells the B cells. The B cells are very important in your immune system for producing antibodies. So it selects the right B cell that has the antibody for that pollen. So in all your thousands or millions of antibodies in the body, there's, there's going to be one for pollen, and this T cell picks the B cell just for that antibody for pollen, and it selects it. So it says, you're the one, I need you, and then it tells it to clone itself. So constantly copy and copy and copy and copy. And then the next interleukin comes in, which turns the B cell into a plasma cell, which means it all it does is just vomits out um, antibodies for pollen or anti-pollen. So now your body is just flooded, in this case a person who's um, reacting to pollen, is just their body's being overwhelmed by antibodies against pollen. 
Now, this process takes about 10 to 15 days. What type of antibody is it? An anti-pollen antibody. Is that what it's, you meant? It's not IgE? Oh, sorry, yes. It's an IgE-specific antibody. So there's a whole group of them, but this is an IgE-specific. Now, what that means is your blood and your tissues are now exposed to this high amount of IgE anti-pollen antibody. Now, two cells that take this this type of antibody up are the mast cells and the basophils, particularly the mast cells. So now you have all these primed mast cells in the location that we mentioned, being under the skin or in the mucosa. So this could be in your gut or in your airway or in your blood vessels. So that means when pollen comes along next time, um, you've got all these really hypersensitive mast cells that as soon as pollen binds to the antibodies, it will tell the mast cells to just start vomiting out its histamines. Now, for a person with hay fever, this just means that histamines are being released into the mucosa of your airway, which could mean... Now, histamine itself is a vasodilator, which causes blood vessels to dilate, but it also tells endothelial tissue to shrink. So this means all... A lot of fluid comes out of your blood vessels and it also tells smooth muscle to contract, which means your airway will start to close in. So for a person with uh, hay fever, their symptoms are going to be um, a blocked nose, a runny nose, irritated eyes, and they might have trouble kind of swallowing. Is that kind of what you see, Dinesh, if a person had hay fever? Yeah, it's, um, it's a lot less severe and um, obviously not as life-threatening as... Uh, anaphylaxis would be, but yeah, it's a, it's a sort of mild, more annoying reaction for them. Okay. Now, if this was to be at a higher scale, then you have the same histamine release, but now it goes systemically. So you have histamine release in all, all your blood vessels in your body or in all your airways or in other parts of your body, which means now it becomes a systemic response. So maybe instead of the pollen, it's now to peanuts. So when a person first ingests peanuts for the very first time, they might not get any reaction to it, but the second exposure, then they have a systemic response, which could be from, in this case, this girl's response being starting off with just um, flushing, itchiness, a bit of sweating, throat tightness. So that's kind of localised to the airway, um, a bit of skin. Now it's becoming more severe to compromise in her airway. So all her bronchioles will start closing in and then possibly all her blood vessels will start dilating. So Matt's spoken about, so this is what you'd get with the uh, immunologically dependent picture of anaphylaxis. But there's also, like Matt briefly spoke about, the non-immunological picture. And so the difference, simplistically, is that whatever the trigger is, whether it be, like Matt said, pollen or a protein in a peanut or even a drug, it just directly targets the mast cells and basophils as opposed to having to go through this primed B-cell IgE production pathway. And so regardless, what we're finding here is that all roads lead to Rome and Rome in this case are your basophils and mast cells that are ultimately being triggered systemically so not just in isolation not just in one particular area but throughout the body and these mast cells are like matt said spewing out was that the word you spewing out yep 
spewing out histamine, prostaglandins, cytokines, interleukins, and a whole bunch of other pro-inflammatory chemicals. Just one thing I'll add before we jump into the diagnosis. So when the mast cells are degranulating, there's two kind of phases to it. There's the early phase, which is where the the um, the mast cell degranulates and just releases what's already inside it. In this case, histamines, um, certain enzymes that can break down proteins, and also uh, heparin, I think. So even so, some anticoagulant agents. So this is a very early, quick phase. But while this is happening, the mast cell is also changing its gene expression. So it's starting to read its DNA differently and starting to produce cytokines, which is telling the immune system, the white blood cells, to come along, come to the area, we need your help. And then you have even a later phase, which um, on the membrane of the mast cell, it changes the fats into like the phospholipids into leukotrienes and prostaglandins, which is going to take probably hours, maybe even a day, possibly, I'm not sure, um, to actually start to cause an effect. So there's an immediate phase, but there's also a later phase, which is possibly something you need to consider clinically because um, they're going to have a different effect. So you might have the histamines release, which, you know, for instance, you could take an antihistamine, but then if you have all these other leukotrienes and prostaglandins and so forth and um, cytokines, they're going to have a different effect and so the antihistamines may not be as effective. How does that all sound? Sounds good to me. Now, I also think that if we start, so I think we start need to start looking at the clinical picture. And so we're going to draw Dinesh back into this conversation. Um, when you get somebody, so I do want to jump back to this sort of case history, uh, this this particular case study, sorry. But I think it's important to say that, and I want you to clarify or agree. Yeah. Hopefully agree. Hopefully I got this right. That <laughs> the, the most common cause of death in anaphylaxis is due to either the hypoxia caused to due to upper airway asphyxia uh, or severe bronchospasm, so a little bit lower down in the airways, or from shock because of the vasodilation. Are they the three biggest things that may kill somebody having anaphylaxis? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so that's what you want to avoid, obviously. So we have this young girl coming in. Now, her her oxygen saturation is 92%, which Mm. I assume is not ideal, uh, and she's wheezing a little bit with a little bit of laryngeal edema. Now, at this point you look at your criteria, do you, and with the patient history, knowing that she's had that ingestion of that nutty biscuit, um, what do you do? So the if you made the diagnosis of anaphylaxis, the most important thing is going to be getting the adrenaline into her, or as our American counterparts say, epinephrine. It's more like epinephrine. <laughs> That's it. So the most important thing in this case is going to be getting adrenaline into her. So if, um, so you said if we've made the ana- the diagnosis as anaphylaxis, but if it were to be you're incorrect in your diagnosis mm. and it's an asthma attack, for example, mm. which I don't know, would that be what you think is the second differential? Differential, yeah. So okay. that that would be a differential for the. This uh, young lady, which she's got known asthma as well. Correct. And it's really important to get the diagnosis right. 
it's not uncommon to uh, have adrenaline inappropriately given. Uh, some of the other differentials, um, yeah, asthma is one of them. Sometimes even uh, localized reactions or even a panic attack can be mistaken for anaphylaxis. So making the right diagnosis, making sure that it meets the criteria and then giving timely adrenaline is the most important thing. So what does that mean, timely adrenaline? So obviously it mean, it refers to dosage and when you apply that. So is it a bolus or is it subtly given over time? Or Well, it's actually intramuscular is the first line uh, treatment. So this, this young girl, for example, might already have an adrenaline auto-injector, which is commonly known as an EpiPen. She might already have an EpiPen on her. Or uh, if she doesn't, then we'll give it to her in the emergency department. And that should be given um, over the lateral third of the thigh or over the vastus lateralis. It's the most ideal place to give it. So would there be cases where you wouldn't give it IN, you'd need to give it IV? IM would be the first line, but if they're refractory to treatment um, by IM, because IV adrenaline is associated with more complications, more cardiovascular complications, more circulatory uh, complications. So IM is the ideal way to give it. So if they were, if they came in unresponsive, they were already passed out, and their blood pressure was super low, would you yeah. ever consider IV over IM? Yeah, so if if you're not having any success, then you can start at IV. Um, you can give it IV bolus and then work work into IV infusion as well. Um, but that should be done by a doctor who's experienced okay. in adrenaline infusions. Um, so if you're me, then you'd have to call a senior okay. to do that. And is there, are there any cases with comorbidities where you m- would have to consider giving epi or not consider giving epi? Like let's say if they had serious heart complications. Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the thing is with anaphylaxis, it's most likely going to kill them if it's not treated. They're going to have a respiratory arrest or they're going to go into profound shock. But there are things where you need to exercise some caution or at least be extra vigilant if they have pre-existing cardiovascular disease, if they've had some intracranial surgery or um, have some known intracranial pathology, there are a few things where you need to be careful about. The other thing is with anaphylaxis itself, um, mast cells can cause destabilization of existing coronary plaques. So it can cause a myocardial infarction in itself. But really balancing the risk to their life um, and the comorbidities, it's often the case that you'll just give the adrenaline. So adrenaline, f- f- first line, um, are, are these individuals straight away put on oxygen? Are they, will they be given oxygen regardless? Yeah, so if, if uh, it, in the emergency setting at least, it happens in a, you know, it's an orchestra, there are multiple team members doing multiple things. So you, you'll give the adrenaline, you'll give them some oxygen, um, you'll do a variety of things to get these thing, get the situation sorted. I think one of the other important things to mention is that um, the right dose of adrenaline is important. Uh, so for, for anyone, 
it's 0.01 milligrams per kilogram up to 500 micrograms is the uh, dose that you can use. In kids under 10 kilos, it's important to do um, a weight-based dosing, but you may not always have the time if, if it's a time-critical thing. The easy way to remember things uh, they taught us in med school is if they're 0 to 6, um, you can use 150 mics. If they're 6 to 12, you can use 300 mics. And if they're over 12, you can use 500 mics intramuscular. I have come across a case where someone had a reaction uh, to an allergen and in the community they were given one milligram intravenously, which is the resuscitation dose. Oh, okay. And do we know at what stage, what criteria they were hitting in that sense? They, they were definitely having an anaphylactic reaction. Okay. Um, so they got given double the maximum dose. And subsequently they had a myocardial infarction. Okay. You know, otherwise healthy. Person. Due to the direct, eff- assumingly due to the direct effects that adrenaline has on the heart? Yeah. So, yeah, an intravenous uh, dose, an intravenous dose like that can be associated with more cardiovascular complications. Oh, that was intravenous one one milligram. milligram. Yeah. I've, I've also seen um, one milligram accidentally given um, in the community intramuscularly as well, and this just made the person very sick and anxious. Yeah. So how long it does – so you give the adrenaline – how quickly does it have its effects and what effects are you waiting for? Very quickly. Um, so we're, we're talking seconds to minutes. They'll start to improve. Uh, and I mean, it, it's like magic. They instantly start to look better. They might actually feel a bit anxious um, because you, you know, you're essentially triggering the flight or fight response. So they might get anxious, palpitations, that sort of thing. But clinically, they'll start to improve. Their blood pressure will improve if they have wheeze or stride, it will improve. Um, any edema that you can visualize might improve. Yeah, so what if they've had significant fluid shift at this point? I assume that the adrenaline, while it's going to help a little bit with the blood pressure and it's going to obviously help with the airways opening up because as, as listeners probably already know, the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight system, opens airways up and this makes sense when we look at evolutionarily speaking because when you're scared you want to run away or fight and you want more air coming in to do that so opening up the airways makes sense for the sympathetic nervous system so adrenaline does this it also is going to uh, constrict certain blood vessels while it dilates others but a systemic constriction of the peripheral um, uh, vascular system is what we're after here which in a fight or flight situation shunts blood to muscles and so forth so you can fight or run away. But in this case, it's going to obviously allow for the fluid to remain intravascularly. But what about if the fluid's already shifted outside of the bloodstream? What do you do? Well, that's where uh, the vasoconstrictive effects will be helpful because even though you've lost volume, you're tightening up the circulation. So that's going to bring your blood pressure up. But in these patients, you want some, uh, you want um, good IV access to fluid resuscitate them. And if they're profoundly hypotensive, in addition to the adrenaline that you're going to give, you want to start aggressive fluid resuscitation with normal saline. Um, 
And, and the fluid that's moved, that's shifted extravascularly, do you do anything with that? As in, is yeah. can anything be done? Do you, do you okay. want that to then be passed or do you want that to be yeah. pulled back into the system? So in these patients, the thing is you, you're going to do aggressive fluid resuscitation because you need to bring that blood pressure up and in, increase, improve their perfusion. What you want to do at the same time, because that fluid that's shifted is eventually going to come back into the intravascular space as you treat them. So you want to keep an eye out for signs of fluid overload. So you're going to want to make sure that they're not getting pulmonary edema. Um, and you know. How would you discriminate that from the, some of the reaction just from the um, allergen, like um, edema in the lungs from the reaction to the allergen opposed to fluid overload? Yeah, that, that could be tricky sometimes to watch. But um, if you're really suspicious about fluid overload, um, I guess clinically they're going to have crackles if you're using a stethoscope to auscultate. Okay, yeah. But um, you can also do a chest X-ray. If it's oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and what about the like intubation and, uh, and giving oxygen? Yeah. When do you decide to, to do that? Yeah, that's an important thing. So oxygen you can just give um, when they turn up. Is there a saturation level that you wouldn't? Is it like it, does it have to be below 90 or do you just give yeah. it regardless? Yeah, I mean, you, you can just give it regardless. Um, intubation is a really important point because these patients, you have airway edema, you have... Um, it's it can turn into a very difficult intubation, um, and if they're in respiratory arrest, or if you suspect that the airway edema is so significant that respiratory arrest is impending, you want intubation to be performed by the most experienced clinician there there is. Um, so you probably want to involve anesthetics, ENT if they're around. Um, and in the worst cases, you might have to do an invasive. Um, Glycothyroid. Yeah. Um, and so from your experience seeing an anaphylactic reaction, do you find that the upper airways compromise first, then lower? Like like larynx, larynx and trachea and that area more affected or epiglottis affected earlier on than the bronchioles or it kind of all goes together? In the patients that I've seen, it's it you know they have stride. It's hard to say where where that airway compromise is, but you can look inside the throat and you can see the edema sometimes. Um, so it, it's hard to tell. But um, the I think the key point really is to make sure that if you suspect impending airway compromise, at that point is early intubation. Okay, and what about the other? Medications like antihistamines, corticosteroids. When yeah. Would you use them yeah. concurrent or will they come in later? Antihistamines are useful for symptomatic relief of pruritus, but it's not a life-saving drug. Adrenaline is the life-saving measure that you need to take. There's little evidence for glucocorticoid use in these patients, so um, we haven't used them. It's really adrenaline. So adrenaline does... Um, fixes all the things that the mast cells are causing, but also um, it stops further mast cell uh, degranulation as well. So that was going to be my question. When you send them home, however long that may be after you see them, do you send them home with any particular drugs to take? EpiPen, Um, particularly if it's their first um, 
encounter. You can get biphasic reactions in anaphylaxis. So you can get a second reaction up to 12 hours later, rarely days later. Wow. Uh, That that was the late phase I was referring to where the the mast cell, it's already degranulated, so it's got rid of everything, but then it starts to make things itself like the cytokines. That's where I thought maybe the corticosteroids come in to stop that, you know, the DNA expression. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's little evidence clinically for glucocorticoids and we don't routinely do it. What we do is, um, and this is again arbitrary, there's not much evidence to it, but we watch them to four to six hours and then we make sure that they have an EpiPen to go home with. So we either get one of their family members to go out and get one, we give them a prescription and say, before you take this person home, go pick this up from the pharmacy and have it on you. Or so if the biphasic, so if it is biphasic and they do have a second wave of attack, basically, um, adrenaline again would be the first line of defense. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. And sometimes even in the clinical environment, you might have to give multiple doses of adrenaline. It's rare. Do we know how quickly it passes? I assume it's very, I mean, working from first principles of, you know, noradrenaline and adrenaline that's produced in the body, it's uh, broken down very quickly. I assume it's no different in that sense that the half-life of it is quite quick. Absolutely. And that's why in cases refractory to IM adrenaline, you you know, in extreme cases, you'll need an infusion. Yeah. So, so if you give IM and it seems like not much is happening, you'd be pretty confident that after a given amount of time, it's broken down, you can give them another bolus uh, or at least give them some intravenous yeah you can use im adrenaline a couple of times multiple times and depending on your clinical judgment if you feel that this person is really really not improving um ideally you would have always already had intravenous access um and in the emergency setting you might have some of those things already prepared so if you feel that this person is really not improving and they're going downhill you'll want to potentially start an adrenaline infusion. Um, Ideally, again, having a doctor with experience in infusions. So uh, unless there's something else for Matt to add on on that particular point, I just wanted to talk about some of the triggers for anaphylaxis. We touched upon a couple. We spoke about this young girl presenting um, knowing that she's got a peanut or potential tree nut allergy. So nuts can be common. So s- certain proteins in foods are common. Um, we know that pollens and other allergens are common, but drugs are potentially one of the most common causes of anaphylaxis. Um, we know bee stings as well, venoms and so forth, but drugs like NSAIDs, non steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, codeine, Panadol, um, those types of medications, uh, antibiotics as well, can all cause anaphylaxis. So... If somebody has taken one of these particular drugs, do we? is there anything that we can say to them that they could recognize and go, maybe I'm having an allergic response may that, that may potentially then lead down the track to an anaphylactic response? That anyone, you know, is there anything that you know that would be um, a first presentation so that you can say, get to ED uh, and make sure we can hit this on the head? Yeah, I think it's just giving them the standard things like if you generally start to feel rubbish, if your voice starts to get hoarse, if you start to get dizzy, anything starts to swell, all those kind of things. And I think for a patient, it's better to err on the side of caution and be conservative. 
for them to pop in and be assessed by us. So pruritus, skin rash, things like that, or would you say that it would need to be coinciding with some, something respiratory-wise? Yeah, generally. Um, so, But if you're concerned, you always go and speak to a exactly, medical professional. That's exactly right. Because this can be such a profound reaction and it's life-threatening. So if you've got a patient that's got a known, um, known allergy to something that causes anaphylaxis, you want them to err on the side of caution. Absolutely. Now, Maddie, is there anything else you'd like to add when it comes to anaphylaxis? Could, you, could the differential be falling in love? Because you said um, <laughs> dizzy, sweating, and things start to swell. I'm just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially. Uh, um, Don't answer it. Don't uh, answer it. There's, a, there's actually one other point that I wanted to make. Because we were talking about, um, you know, we always talk about feedback mechanisms and compensatory mechanisms in physiology. And when you're having an anaphylactic reaction, I guess your body tries to compensate in certain ways as well. But what if you're on a beta blocker or an ACE inhibitor? Oh, yeah. Um, so theoretically, these things can worsen the situation um, and even blunt the response to adrenaline. I was just going to say, yeah, can it negate what happens with the adrenaline? Because obviously a beta... So we know that with uh, the sympathetic nervous system, the receptors are alpha and beta receptors. And so that um, if you've got a beta blocker, you're blocking one of adrenaline's targets to have its effect um, and its effect at the heart, but other various organ structures. So you're saying that somebody's on a beta blocker, that the adrenaline that you administer as a life-saving measure could be blunted. Potentially. So you need to just keep that in mind. If these guys are on a beta blocker or, um, yeah, or some other medication that might be blunting what you're doing, you may need to administer other things like glucagon to... Um, oh, yeah, amplify. Yeah. yeah, potentially. The other thing to remember also uh, in anaphylaxis is that if there's someone with an intellectual impairment or if there's someone with... Um, the other important one to remember is that we, we give uh, medications during surgery that can cause anaphylaxis. And I think statistically those those reactions cause death a lot quicker than other reactions. So if someone is intubated asleep and covered up. Yeah, how do you know? Yeah, you may not see a rash and you may not. So the, so the first thing you see is potentially the blood pressure and heart rate dropping. Or maybe heart rate goes up a little bit because obviously it's trying to pump mm. as much blood as it can. But the blood pressure at least dropping. And then everyone in the theatre crapping themselves. Exactly. <laughs> so th there are some special situations where you just need to be a bit more mindful about what might be happening. Um, so I think that those are some of the important things to remember. Oh, I think that's great. Matty, what else? Is there any final points that you would like to give out to health professionals who may be seeing patients like this? Any kind of advice that you may have? I think the... I guess the really two main important things is to recognize and diagnose anaphylaxis properly with the criteria. And if you know that it's anaphylaxis, is to get adrenaline to them as quickly as possible. The right dose, right route. Yes, exactly. Dinesh, thank you so much for coming in again. We really appreciate it. Maddie, thank you. Can we have, can we have you back? Anytime. Oh, great. All right, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>
<laughs> Everyone, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Just Google Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike. You can listen to our podcasts as you're listening to them now, maybe iTunes or Spotify. Make sure you tell your friends and colleagues about us. Um, we're lonely. We need friends. So feel free to drop us an email, gubiosciences at gmail.com. Apart from that, I'll speak to you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.